This morning we finish, Lord willing, the Sermon on the Mount. As we've been walking through Matthew, you remember as we talked about Matthew, Matthew is the gospel of the kingdom. It's presenting Jesus as king. It's talking about his kingdom. And then it is teaching us how to live in light of that coming kingdom. And so Matthew is structured in such a way that there's narrative, there's story that presents us and who Jesus is. And then there's these discourses. There's five of them. And the first one is the Sermon on the Mount. And what we've said in the Sermon on the Mount is it's teaching us about kingdom righteousness. Uh, what if, if Jesus is the king, and he is that king, he's presented himself as king in the early chapters already of Matthew, if he is that king, and he is calling disciples, followers, citizens of that kingdom, how do you live in light of that truth and that reality? And so what Jesus started with in the introduction to his sermon from 5, 1 through 16 was describing what does it look like to, as a disciple to live the happy life, the good life. In fact, Jesus lays that out for us and it's paradoxical because to live a happy life, to live the good life, to live the flourishing life now, actually you might, you will, as a follower of Jesus, you will suffer, you will mourn, you will be opposed by others, and yet it's the good life because that means in the end you will have the kingdom. You will have Jesus, the king, and you will have the kingdom in the future. And so now, as, uh, as those, the disciples that live that blessed, that flourishing life, they do so as salt and light in the world. They look different. They look distinct. Why? So that they can show that they have allegiance to the king and that they have been changed as those who have repented. Jesus' message has been repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. As those who have repented, turned allegiance from sin and self to entrust themselves to the care, the saving work of Jesus and then to live out a kingdom life, a kingdom righteousness life, they're going to stick out as salt and light and People will hear, people will repent, and so they will glorify the Father who is in heaven, the Father, the adopted Father of the disciples. And then Jesus lays out, if that's in general what the disciples look like and what their life looks like and their mission looks like, okay, what is this kingdom righteousness? And starting in 5.17 and going through 7.12, Jesus has laid out, and we've gone through it over several weeks Jesus has laid out what does that righteousness look like. It's, not, it's obeying God's law, uh, even the Old Testament law, not in the external manifestation necessarily, but looking beyond the external word and driving to the heart, God's heart, because every manifestation of God's law is, is rooted in his eternal moral character and so Jesus is laid out with specific things. Uh, 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 mur not murdering someone means not just murdering them, but not hating them. Not committing adultery means not just literally not committing adultery, but not lusting. 
and driving back to the heart, such that Jesus can summarize that in 548, you therefore must be perfect or blameless as your heavenly Father is blameless. 6, 1 through 18 talks about righteous habits. Righteous habits. How do you pray? How do you give? How do you fast? In a way, looking for the Father's reward and not the reward from people. And then 6, uh, 19 through 34, dealing with possessions. How do you view possessions? Whether you have a lot or whether you have not a lot, how do you prioritize? How do you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? You You do that as a disciple. The kingdom of God and the Father's righteousness is the highest priority of a disciple, even above needs and necessities of life. And then if that's the standard we talked about last week, if this is the standard that Jesus is calling his disciples to, those whom he's called to follow him, how do, you avoid, how do you relate to others? That's what we talked about last week. Uh, uh, you can misuse what Jesus is saying and say, well, I've, I've, I've attained this. I've met this righteous standard. Therefore, I can judge others. I can measure others by myself and say, oh, I'm righteous. Uh, well, you're not righteous because you're, uh, you're not living up to me. That's the kind of judging that Jesus is saying, no, you must not do that. And yet uh, the disciples are to sit under God's law both of them under God's law. They're to hold each other accountable to God's law. They're to be discerning. They're not to give the, pre- the precious message of the kingdom to those who are insensitive, to those who are decidedly, they hear the message and that they're vicious, they're insensitive, they don't want to hear it. And then all of this, even as we saw last week, is how do you not become one who's insensitive? How do you not become a dog or a pig? As he mentions in verse 6, All of this, every aspect of discipleship, of following and seeking the kingdom is rooted in grace. Verse 7 of chapter 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. That's language of seeking the kingdom, seeking to live in accordance with the kingdom, seeking the kingdom at the end of this life. But it's all by God's grace. It's all by God's generosity as a good father and if you've received that generosity, 712, then you can extend that to others. As you would want others to treat you, you can treat them in that way, in a generous way, because the Father has given you grace in the message of the kingdom. And that ends Jesus' main section, main, the body of his sermon. He has an introduction, he has a body, and he has a conclusion. So now what we do today is we visit Jesus' conclusion. And I want you to think about this. Uh, where is Jesus? He's on a mountain in Galilee, uh, talking to his disciples. That's the primary audience, those who are following him. He's talking to them first and foremost. And then you've got this general crowd that's observed his miracles. They're there. They're the secondary audience. They're the secondary audience. But think about this. Jesus is ending this sermon And really the question he's asking in this section is, what are you going to do with what I just told you? What are you going to do with what I just told you? Uh, The tone, the tone of this section is sober and serious. I, I, I was thinking about it this week. Imagine Jesus, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And uh, since he's recorded this for us, we've said that this is for us as well as his disciples 
as he's given this to us, imagine Jesus speaking these words in this church right here. Imagine he was here behind this pulpit and he's walked you through all of his sermon and he were standing and these are the words, these are the very words he would tell you and talk to you about today. And I want you to think about that as we walk through this text. The main idea of Jesus' conclusion is this. Hear and do Jesus' teaching as one known by Jesus in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Hear and do Jesus' teaching as one known by Jesus in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's everything we see today in the conclusion. It's all oriented around that idea. What are you going to do with what's, what I just told you? So we start in verse 13 and 14. Take the narrow road of kingdom living. Take the narrow road of kingdom living. Look at verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. Now, before going even anywhere farther, that word enter is an important word. You see, uh, Matthew has used it, and he will use it later in the same section, to talk about one reality. In 520, you remember how he, in the very kind of start of his sermon and laying out, here's the standard of kingdom righteousness, he said in 520, for I tell you, unless your righteousness, that's in this case, that means righteous things that you do, good works, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, those who just have an external letter of the law, sort of obedience, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is talking about that same reality. When he talks about entering the narrow gate, he's looking to the future. In fact, you will see the same language in 721. Uh, he'll talk about entering the kingdom of heaven. He'll make it explicit. It's the same word, entering. You see, the reality is uh, God's plan from Genesis to Revelation is he has a kingdom. He is king in heaven, but he on earth in his creation, he has authorized, he has deputized a king. It started with Adam and then it, uh, we had Israel and David and all of these kings. And that's his, uh, that's his purpose is his, through his chosen king manifesting his reign. Well, the ultimate person who's going to do that is Jesus, the son of David, as he's been presented in the earlier chapters. And that kingdom is not come yet. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. It's drawn near in the person of him as the king, and yet the future reality of the fullness of that coming kingdom where he rules over all the world. There is no unrighteousness. There is perfect obedience to God. That's what the kingdom is going to entail, a renewal of the earth in the fullest sense. That's the reality that entering the kingdom is talking about. It's a future reality. And so Jesus says here, enter by the narrow gate. And so he starts using some imagery here. He supports it for the gate or because the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So what's this imagery? Well, think about where Jesus is. He's in Galilee, right? So he's somewhere in Galilee. The imagery is of a road, two roads actually, two roads leading up to two different cities. 
Uh, one, uh, one road is narrow, it's constricted, it's overgrown, leading up to a city with a very narrow entrance. The other road is a very broad road leading up to a very broad gate into a city. And he says the, it makes sense. If you've got a narrow path and it's kind of overgrown, it's hard to find, uh, there's a few people on the narrow path and there's a lot of people on the broad path. It's the path of least resistance principle isn't it? The path of least resistance principle. But what is Jesus talking about? Well, taking it in conjunction with what he's been teaching us in the sermon, the narrow way, uh, the, the, talking about a road, is, it's a common metaphor in scripture talking about your conduct in life, your conduct in life. And what Jesus has been saying, he already said it early on in 520, that um, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Meaning, the, the righteous standard that's being laid out in the Sermon on the Mount, unless you are living according to that standard, you will not enter. That is the narrow road that Jesus is talking about. Are you living in uh, this, this, this standard that Jesus has set up, are you living according to that standard? Because only if you're living according to that standard are you going to enter. It's a hard way. As we've walked through everything that the Sermon on the Mount talks about, loving your enemies, not retaliating, uh, not laying up for yourself treasures on heaven, that's a hard road. It's difficult. And yet it's the only road that's going to lead to the kingdom. Now, we have to understand, remember the context of the whole sermon, right? The idea is that, remember Jesus called, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. So the initial start of discipleship is you repent. You have repent from allegiance to sin and self, and you turn and entrust yourself to Christ, his work as savior on your behalf, his, his lordship as king. But if you have turned in that sort of way, your whole life will change. And you will live in accordance, not perfectly, but characteristically by the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus knows that, uh, you know, you might ask, well, wait a minute, um, what if people fail? What if you fail uh, as a disciple in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, Jesus acknowledges that. That's why there's that plea in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. But he's saying that those who are his true disciples, those who know him, those who are seeking the kingdom of heaven, it's a hard road. It's a narrow road. It's a constricted road. Conversely, the, 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 and, and on the other side of that road, you've got this narrow, overgrown, constricted road leading up to this narrow little door. But on the other side of that narrow little door is the kingdom and life in the fullest sense of that word. Life as it was meant to be lived with the Father, with the Son, with the Spirit, enjoying a renewed heavens, a renewed earth, enjoying the presence of the King, living a perfect righteousness for eternity. Conversely, the path of least resistance, the easy path, is the Broadway, and there are many on it. But on the other side of the broad gate is destruction, God's destruction, eternal destruction in the fires of his judgment for eternity. What's Jesus doing? He's talking to his disciples, 
and he's motivating. Here, here are people that have already committed to him. Uh, yes, there's that secondary audience of the crowds, but here, first and foremost, he's talking to his disciples. What's he doing? He's saying, I just laid out for you as my disciple. This is what it looks like. And you got to keep persevering. Really, this is the idea of perseverance, right? Uh, one can commit to Jesus, right? And, 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 and you think you may have committed to Jesus and you're following him as king, but it's a hard road. It's a hard life and it demands perseverance. Perseverance in what Jesus has taught. And the stakes couldn't be higher. You're talking life or eternal destruction. And he's trying to motivate his disciples, keep walking on the narrow path. Keep following this. Keep coming back to this to make it, to make it, to persevere to the end. You shift and you take the easy path, the path of least resistance that's easy, that's comfortable, doesn't take any effort That's the road that leads to the broad gate, which leads to destruction. Is your Christian walk easy and comfortable? Now, that's a a real question. I think Jesus would ask you that if he was standing here. Is your Christian walk easy and comfortable? If it is, you should be very concerned. Because Jesus is the one saying, it's hard. It's difficult. There's... uh, the path to make it all the way to the end is difficult. Are you on the narrow or the broad path? Do you look and come back to the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' standard that he's laid out? This is what disciples should look like. Are you striving for that? Are you growing on that? Not by your own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit given in the new covenant. Are you striving to grow in the righteousness expressed in the Sermon on the Mount? Again, you need to pull both of these things together. Jesus holds a high standard and gives the ability to obey. The one who comes to him and follows him as the disciple, he's the new covenant mediator. And one of the new covenant promises is that the, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells your life to help you and enable you to obey and do this, this life. Are you striving to follow that narrow path, striving to grow in the righteousness expressed in the Sermon on the Mount? See, following Jesus is hard because it goes against all our natural inclinations. Our natural inclinations are the things that lead us onto the broad path. So you have to push against that. And Jesus would have us push against that to stay on the narrow path to make it. And what's going to motivate you? What's going to motivate you to keep focusing on the narrow path, to keep pressing in and on in the narrow path versus the broad path? The reality is at the end, right? The stakes are eternal. Heaven versus hell. And so those are the things that motivate you. Do you think about the future realities of eternal life and destruction to motivate you to pursue Jesus, to press into Jesus and to press into his righteousness? That's what Jesus is getting us to think about. First, take the narrow road of kingdom living. Take the narrow road of kingdom living. Second, beware of destructive false teachers Beware of destructive false teachers. Look at verse 15. Beware of false prophets. 
What's a prophet? A prophet is uh, a normal or a true prophet is one who speaks on behalf of God. He speaks his will. He speaks, he speaks on behalf of God. A false prophet uh, claims to speak for God, claims to be guiding and teaching in the way of righteousness, but is proclaiming uh, falsehoods, platitudes. There's a, there's a good Old Testament tradition of this. You can look in the Old Testament, especially around the time of exile, when, when Israel is about to go into exile, there were true prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah that are saying, uh, you guys are doing the outward forms of religion, and yet you, uh, you have no desires for God. You're, you're, you're not obeying him. You're not desiring him. You're giving him lip service. And the true prophets are trying to call Israel to repentance but false prophets are saying things like this, peace, it's okay. You're not going to be destroyed. God has a wonderful plan for your life and he's going to make it happen. That's what the false prophets said. And why were they doing it? Uh, and this is where some of Jesus' imagery comes from. They were doing it for selfish gain. He says this, Jesus says this, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. They look good. They look good on the outside. They look like a disciple. Their profession is great. But inwardly, what's their inward nature? They're ravenous wolves. The imagery, we understand that imagery intuitively. We've got this wolf in the midst of the flock. He's disguised, but why is he there? He's there to destroy and to get gain for himself. And that's the nature of false prophets. You see this in the Old Testament, uh, that uh, they were saying things like peace, not a problem. God's gonna, nothing's bad's gonna happen to you. God's judgment's not gonna come to you. Why were they doing that? So they get paid well for prestige, for food, for money. And Jesus is saying that's the same reality. There's gonna be false prophets among you, disciples. And so the natural question is how do you identify them? How do you identify these false prophets so we don't get taken unawares? Verse 16, here's the key principle. You will recognize them by their fruits. That's the principle he then spends uh, some time explaining, uh, making sure the disciples understand that. Now, a couple of things to note about fruit. It's fruits, plural. Okay, so there, we're talking not just one piece of fruit, but we're talking a lot of fruit here. What would that correspond to? Well, this is the same thing that John the Baptist talked about in John uh, uh, in Matthew 3, uh, he said, uh, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And that's the context of the Sermon on the Mount. If you're a disciple, you've repented, you've turned your allegiance from sin and self and entrusted yourself to God, you've entrusted himself to the king, to Jesus, and you're going to change. You're going to change. And you're going to bear fruits. Fruits, plural. And in the context of Matthew, in the context of what Jesus has been saying, he's talking about the good deeds, the good works, the righteousness that Jesus has described in the Sermon on the Mount. So again, we come back to that standard. You will recognize these guys, these false prophets, by their fruits. And then he explains it. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Well, no, of course not. Uh, it's a rhetorical question saying, of course that doesn't happen. Why not? Because you've got a thistle or a thorn bush. It's not in its nature. It's not in its nature to produce figs or grapes. It's not in its nature. 
And that's the principle that Jesus is explaining. You can look at people's fruits and run them by Jesus' standard that he's led them, put out in the Sermon on the Mount. And if the fruit is good, then it comes from a good nature. If it's bad, it comes from a bad nature. Look at verse 17. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into a fire, which is a verbatim quotation of exactly the same thing that John the Baptist said in, in Matthew 3. Verse 20, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So initially, Jesus says, you, you, it's not in the nature of a thistle or a thorn bush to produce grapes or figs. Then he kind of switches a little bit and he says, all right, let's imagine you got two trees. You got of the same, so we got two apple trees, let's say, or whatever. You got two apple trees and here's a healthy tree and here's a diseased tree. Here's a healthy tree and here's a diseased tree. The word that Jesus uses for bad tree, it's the idea of rotten. It's, it's the idea of there's a problem with this tree. So you got these two trees that are the same, um, uh, the, the same species, but they produce the good tree, the healthy tree is going to produce good fruit. The rotten tree is going to produce rotten fruit. And you can't happen vice versa. You can't have a good tree producing bad fruit, rotten fruit, and you can't have a rotten tree producing good fruit. Therefore, therefore, what is God's judgment? Verse 19, um, uh, again, John the Baptist already talked about this. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. You know that God's judgment is according to works. For believer and unbeliever. Because, here's the reality, the fruit comes from a nature. You can look at fruit and you can examine it by the standard that God has given in Scripture and you can say, is, is that good fruit or is that bad fruit? If it's good fruit, it's coming from a good nature. If it's bad fruit, it's coming from a bad nature. Where did that good nature come from? You see, the reality of that scripture testifies to is that no one starts out as a good tree. Everyone starts out as a thorn bush. Everyone starts out as a rotten tree, uh, corrupted by sin and their sin nature, and they can do nothing to help themselves. And yet, through Jesus, through repentance and turning allegiance from your sin and self to Jesus as king, as savior, he deals with not only the, the consequences of sin, he not only on the cross died for uh, in the place of sinners, and is there righteousness in their place so that sinners can be counted righteous? Not only is he they counted righteous, he makes them righteous through the power of the Holy Spirit working in people's lives, which is why this criteria works. Good fruit comes from a renewed nature. Bad fruit comes from a corrupt nature. And so even disciples, now don't miss the main point here, right? The main point, why is he laying this out for his disciples? To be able to look at those who are attempting to teach them. We could call these folks false teachers. Those who are trying to explain or teach God's will. God's will is this. This is what God says. And these people... Um, um, they can say, and uh, they can sound really nice, they can look really good, 
But how are you really going to know? How are you really going to know what they are? Look at their life. Does their life match what Jesus has laid out in the Sermon on the Mount? If so, they're a good tree because God has worked in them. If not, they're a bad tree. They're a false prophet. And get, don't listen to them. Get rid of them. And this is very easy to see in our own time. All those uh, televangelists and those prosperity preachers, they are false teachers. Why? Because they can sound really good. They can say really nice things. They can tickle your ears, but look at their lifestyle. Sexual immorality. Greed. That doesn't square with the Sermon on the Mount. Those are bad trees. Don't listen to them. It's the same thing in looking at books or anything where you would potentially receive teaching. Someone who's going to try to teach you in the way of Jesus, look at their lifestyle. Look at their lifestyle. That should be true of me and Jim and Steve too, right? We're shepherds of this flock. God has put us here. We are stewards. You should be able to look at our lives and examine and say, are we being taught by people who are, uh, are genuine or are wolves? Right? And the point is that they're a threat. The false teachers are a threat. Why? Well, think of the narrow path and the broad path imagery. Uh, a, a false teacher, a false prophet is going to try to drag you off the narrow path onto the, 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 the broad path, which is going to lead you to destruction. So you've got to be able to identify these guys, and you've got to be able to say, no. We will not listen to you. You're a wolf. We're, we're not going to hear you. You're a false teacher because the stakes are high. Are you practicing discernment with those whom you're learning from? Are you examining the fruit of their lives by the Sermon on the Mount and other standards that Scripture gives? Does it match? Does it match? Does the fruit match what Jesus lays out? in his sermon, what he has taught. This is what Jesus is saying. This is what Jesus would have us do. Here's another reality. What Jesus is really doing here, he's using a general principle. He's using a general principle as fruit matches nature to, um, to expose false teachers. But that general principle applies universally. That general principle applies universally. So what you should be able to do, and I would, I, you should do this, you should read very slowly and carefully through the Sermon on the Mount this week and examine your life by the standard of righteousness that Jesus lays out. By that standard, by Jesus' standard, are you bearing good fruit or evil fruit? Are you bearing good fruit or are you bearing evil fruit? Now, if we're honest, right, if we work through that, you're going to say, you're going to come away, I'm going to come away and say, well, by God's grace, I see growth here, 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 and here, and uh, that's an area I need to work on, or that's a couple areas I need to work on. And Jesus acknowledges that. And remember that the prayer, uh, the Lord's Prayer, right? Forgive us our trespasses, uh, forgive us our trespasses as we also have forgiven others. Jesus acknowledges we're going to fall short but is there characteristic growth and change? It shows that 
and you say, yeah, by God's grace, there is, that's not uh, an opportunity to say, yeah, I'm doing good. I should feel good about myself. No, it's an opportunity for thanksgiving because that's only by God's grace and only by his work through Jesus in your life for that to happen. Remember, it's hard. Remember, the, it's a narrow road. So, so there, you, you're probably, in a lot of periods of your life, you're going to say, yeah, there's a little bit of change this week, but uh, uh, man, there's a, there's a lot left to do. Well, yeah, uh, sanctification takes time, but characteristically, are you growing in these things? Here's another way you could approach this. Ask a fellow disciple uh, to examine you. That's hard, isn't it? Right? It takes humility to say, um, you know, you know me really well. Ask someone that knows you well, has observed your life, and has good judgment, and ask them, hey, can you just, what you see in my life, am I living this way? Am I growing in these things? And again, they're probably going to say, hey, yeah, uh, I see um, this is good, this is good, this is good. You need to work on this. And that's good because that helps us to grow. But maybe you examine your life by the Sermon on the Mount and say, uh, actually, none of this characterizes me. Or this is, uh, this is I, uh, I don't see fruit. I don't see growth in these areas. Uh, I don't even desire them. What's wrong with me? I don't even desire these things. Then that also is gracious because what God is doing is he's exposing to you, you don't know Christ yet. You don't know Christ yet, and you need to know him so that you can have this change in your life, so that you can know Christ and then know his power of change through the new covenant. Here's what would be the worst sort of response, a total unwillingness to examine yourself. That's concerning. If you're like, yeah, whatever, uh, the pastor said, you know, look at the Sermon on the Mount, and ah, it doesn't matter. Well, I, it's what Jesus is saying, right? Look at your life. The stakes are the highest they could possibly be. So we've saying, take the narrow road of kingdom living. Beware of destructive false teachers. They're going to drag you off that road. Beware of mere external profession. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There's our entering analogy again. He's talking about the same thing. He's talking about the same realities um, from different angles, right? He's talking about the same realities from different angles. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's going on here? What's this Lord, Lord language? Well, there's a couple things, right? One is um, that that's the, the language of uh, uh, you're my master, right? That, that's the language of you're my master. That's, that's the language of discipleship. When you come to Jesus, right, and follow him as a disciple, he's your Lord, he's your master. But there's even more to it than, uh, than that. We've seen in Matthew, Jesus has been presented as the Davidic king, the ultimate Lord over all the earth. The king will reign over all the earth one day. So there's that element, but there's even more. Uh, every time that this combination is used in the Old Testament, where Lord, Lord shows up in the Old Testament, it's always of God. So we're talking Jesus as master, 
Jesus as the Messiah, the, the king over all, and Jesus as God. But here's what's going on. What's amazing is that people can make that sort of external profession and not enter the kingdom of heaven. Your external profession can sound great. And Jesus says, it's not sufficient to enter the kingdom of heaven. What does he say? But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, the profession is necessary. You need to profess Jesus as Lord uh, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, but it's not sufficient. The words, the externals aren't sufficient. It's, are you doing it? The one who does the will of my Father in heaven. What's the will of, uh, what's he talking about? The will of my Father who is in heaven. Well, what has Jesus just laid out? He's saying, uh, here's, the, the, here's the standard that uh, fulfills the law and the prophets. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, the teaching I've given you, this is the righteousness that will be characteristic of my disciples. Doing God's will will mean you're doing the Sermon on the Mount. Because, remember, 548 says what? Be perfect, be blameless, as your Heavenly Father is blameless. That's the standard, right? Doing God's will, he's not talking about like some secret will that I need to discern. No, doing God's will, and we saw this with the, the, the Lord's Prayer, doing God's will is doing what he's laid out in his word for you to do. That is God's will, his revealed will for you to do, And Jesus has laid that out in the Sermon on the Mount. So again, we come back to the same standard. And this is chilling. Look at verse 22. On that day. Now, what day is he talking about? He's talking about the day of judgment. He's talking about the day of judgment. And the scene is someone's having an interview with Jesus on the day of judgment. Did you know that the person who's going to judge on the day of judgment is Jesus? Every single individual, believer or unbeliever, will have an interview with Jesus on the day of judgment. No one's going to escape, and I pray that no one in this room would hear this said, Lord, Lord, on that day, many will say to me, again, this is a many few thing. There are few people who will be saved. Jesus already said that with the narrow versus the broad road, right? So here's the many again. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Now, what's interesting here, it seems like these folks kind of know the standard, right? That Jesus wants people to do things and they point to things that they've done, haven't, aren't they? In your name, what's that language? Uh, I'm doing it. Uh, 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 I'm presenting what I'm doing as under the authority of Jesus, as 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 being His. I'm speaking for Him. That's all of the things they mention, and Jesus doesn't dispute that they did these things. This isn't necessarily a false claim. They could really do this. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name, like actually receive revelation from God and speak it? Balaam did that. Balaam got revelation from God and spoke it. In that sense, he received true prophecy. Cast out demons in your name. 
Judas, Jesus is going to send out the disciples here in chapter 10 to be able to cast out demons. Evidently, we think, I mean, Judas is in that number and we have no reason to assume that he didn't cast out demons. He was able to do that and do many mighty works. That's the idea of miracles in your name. And scripture testifies that false miracles can be done and yet you still not know God, right? So these people are pointing here. We did this stuff. We did this stuff. It looks really great. This is the flashy stuff. This is the stuff we're all attracted to. This is amazing. And Jesus says this, oh my goodness. Verse 23, then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Or another way to say that, not ever did I know you. That is the, I think that may be the, one of the scariest verses. It is one of the scariest verses in the scriptures, right? What is he talking about? I never knew you. He's talking about relationship. He's talking about the reality of, here are these people that they, they have all the externals. They have the external profession. They're saying the right words. They're even doing things that look really good. Uh, they're, they're doing things in the name of Jesus. And yet the issue was, they don't know Jesus. They have no relationship with him. Now think back to chapter 4 and Jesus calling his initial disciples. He took the initiative and said, follow me. And then that person who follows, who swears allegiance to Christ, it initiates a relationship, a bond between a disciple and master. And Jesus will later characterize, that's the family, it's, he's already used it in the Sermon on the Mount, that's a family sort of relationship. You know, those who are disciples of Christ, who entrust themselves to Christ, they're adopted children of the Father. That's why he's used that father-son relationship, that father-child relationship in the sermon. And later he's going to say, who are my mother and my brothers? Here, the ones who do the will of God are my family. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about here. It's the relationship of discipleship, of turning, repenting, turning allegiance from sin and self and entrusting yourself to Jesus and saying, you are my Lord, you are my master, you have my complete control over my life and I love you, you are the treasure of my soul. And all you have to do, here's the amazing thing, some of you might be asking, well, how, how do you know Jesus, right? Well, remember back to chapter 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. God is generous. God is generous. He, to those who would want to know Jesus, Jesus himself will say later, come to me. He calls, he asks. And all you have to do is ask and trust on the generosity of the Father and swear allegiance to Jesus as Lord. And he says this, I never knew you depart from me. The punishment is getting away from Jesus. That's the most devastating thing that could happen. You're away from Jesus because he is the treasure. He is the glorious king of the kingdom. But then he pegs him, you workers of lawlessness. See, that's how, um, that's how discipleship works. You know Jesus and he, uh, he, he deals with your sin in the sense that he's paid for your sin on the cross. He's given you his righteousness, his righteous life in your place. So you're counted righteous. And then he changes your whole life. 
He changes your whole life so that you do obey, so you're not a worker of lawlessness. It's the same standard. Actually, what's interesting here, uh, when he says, depart from me, I will, uh, you workers of lawlessness, he's actually quoting Psalm 6. We don't have time to turn there right now, but you can look it up later. Psalm 6, 8. And what's going on in that psalm is David, David wrote the psalm, and David's saying, I've got these evildoers, they're oppressing me, uh, I'm, my life's in danger. And then the turning point is in verse 8, where he says, depart from me, you workers of evil, for God has heard me. And what Jesus is doing by quoting that, he's essentially saying that all these people that they have the right language, they do really flashy, cool looking stuff, and yet they don't actually obey Jesus and follow him. They don't actually know him. They're actually, even though externally they look really good, they're actually enemies of Jesus. They're opponents. That's what he's saying. Each of us has an interview with Jesus on the day of judgment. What will ultimately matter on that day is not our profession, but our relationship with Jesus as Lord, given through grace, which produces obedience to the righteousness of the Sermon on the Mount. Does Jesus know you? Does he know you? You can, you can have great theological knowledge. You can have great... Language, you have, may have done a thousand things that look externally really good, but does Jesus know you? Is that your treasure and the, the, the joy of your soul that Jesus knows you and that you're his and that you're his slave? He's your master. He's your elder brother. You're his younger brother by adoption through grace. Is that, do you know Jesus? Does Jesus know you? And then see this, verses 24 through 27, do Jesus' teaching to weather God's judgment. Do Jesus' teaching to weather God's judgment. Again, it's the same principle, approached from a different angle. Verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine, which words? Sermon on the Mount, right? Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the things that he has just laid out and taught about, everyone then who hears these words of mine will be like, the wise man, and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and the beat against that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against the house, and it fell, and the fall of it was great." What's the imagery here? Well, you've got a storm, right? A big giant storm. We've gotten a soaking the last few days, but this is like hurricane, right? And it, 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 it goes along with the imagery in the Old Testament of God's judgment. This is another picture of God's judgment. God's judgment is coming. It will happen. It is a storm. And Jesus gives a metaphor of building your life either on a rock or on sand. Now, the rock is not Jesus. Did you notice that? The rock isn't Jesus. There's a relationship between the two, but what building your house on the rock, your life on the rock, is the one who hears these words of mine and does them. 
The only difference between the guy who built his house on the sand and the guy who built his house on the rock, both of them heard Jesus' words, but the only difference was, are you going to do it? Are you going to do it? And if you hear Jesus' words and you do them as your, as he, with him as your master, only that sort of life, we're talking about a whole life, will escape God's judgment. Again, it's that fruits issue. If God has truly changed your nature, if you've truly had a changed nature by grace as a disciple, and you've truly come to know Jesus, your life will be changed. You'll listen to Jesus' words, not only listen to them, but do them. And that's how you're going to weather the storm of God's judgment. That's how you're going to weather the storm of God's judgment. Notice both the one who survives and the one who doesn't survive go through God's judgment in the sense that uh, they're going to go through that, but only the one who hears Jesus' words and does them, does what he's laid out in the sermon will survive. And so really, and that's the last word that Jesus ends his sermon on, right? It's just ringing in your ears. And the question is this, do you do what Jesus tells you to do? Do you live the Sermon on the Mount? Not perfectly, but characteristically. You may hear week in, and week out in church. You may hear week in and week out listening to your favorite preacher on the radio or the YouTube or whatever. But hearing is not the, the standard here. Does your life change? Does your life change? And, and here's the reality. It's kind of amazing. I was struck coming through this he just keeps pointing us back to what he's laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, sometimes we, as Christians, we think, oh, yeah, the Sermon on the Mount, that's nice, and that's a good thing, lots of good ideas and wisdom there. But Jesus keeps pointing back to it as like, this is, these, these words of mine that I've just laid out for you, this is like core discipleship. These are important. Jesus points to doing the righteousness of the Sermon on the Mount to, to face God's judgment. Do you take that seriously? Do you take that seriously? And then in verses 28 and 29, we see what's backing all of this. So we step out of the sermon and we read this, verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, which is a key phrase in Matthew that marks the end of each of those five discourses that we were talking about, five teaching periods of Jesus. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished. So remember the crowds, they're the, the, the people that are there, they're maybe interested in Jesus, they, they've seen his miracles, they're kind of following him, we're not sure if they're disciples yet, maybe some of them are. But the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? Verse 29, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You see, the scribes, the scribes were the ones designated to take the Old Testament law and prophets and to explain them to the people and to explain this is how God wants you to live. But Jesus is teaching not like that. He's not teaching like a commentator. He's teaching as the, the, the teacher, the judge. Remember how we talked about at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount? He went up into the mountain and sat down 
It's paralleling what happened with Moses. Moses went up to the mountain, but Moses went up to the mountain to hear from God. Jesus goes up to the mountain to speak. And that's the kind of authority that's backing this. Jesus is claiming for himself divine authority to speak what he has said. Think about it like this. Jesus has given a sneak preview of the day of judgment. You're going to have an interview with me, and I'm going to ask you about the Sermon on the Mount. And he has the authority to back it because he is God. He is God in human flesh. God the Son incarnated through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the ultimate king and law giver. He is God himself. You must recognize his authority and swear allegiance. So, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I, and I stress this. You can't do this. On your own, you can't. If you look at, if you, we talked about this already. We've talked about it many times. This is very important, right? As humans, we see a standard, you know, a standard that God gives us, whether it's the Old Testament law, whether it's Jesus' standard of righteousness, and we look at that standard and say, I can do it! And no, you can't. If you come to any manifestation of God's righteousness and say, I can do it, I can pull myself up by my bootstraps for God to accept me, you're on the broad path and you'll be destroyed. You'll be devastated by the storm. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about repent and trust yourself to me, follow me, and I'll deal with your sin. I will give your, my righteousness will be counted to you, and I'm actually going to give you my Holy Spirit to live inside of you to change your whole life. That's by grace. It's nothing you can do. This isn't, this isn't when, we, when we see ourselves fall short of the righteousness of the Sermon on the Mount, we can't just say, try harder, do better. No. We see ourselves fall short. We ask forgiveness. We trust in Jesus dying in our place and his righteous life in our place. And then we do strive to do better, but not based on our own strength, strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit given through the new covenant of which Jesus is the mediator. The Sermon on the Mount is core instruction on discipleship. Do you revisit it often? Even as you're helping others to grow in Christ, are you leading others through it? Do you say, okay, you just became a brand new believer. Let's go to the Sermon on the Mount, and let's talk about what it looks like to be a disciple. It's what we need to be doing. And if you're here this morning, and whether you've been in church for a long time, or whether you've, you just wandered in this morning, wanted to see what all the fuss is about, right? Regardless you have an interview with Jesus on the day of judgment and you don't know him, please don't leave today without talking to me, Steve, Jim, but repent. That's what Jesus calls you to. Repent and entrust yourself to him. Swear allegiance to him as Lord and he will change your whole life and you will know him for eternity as treasure. Let's pray. Jesus, you know everyone's heart in this room at this instant. Do business with people. 
use your spirit to do business with people in this room. Do work in my heart as well. Lord, we need to grow. We, we as disciples, we want to follow you. Uh, help us to do this. Help us to grow in righteousness, to strive, to work hard, not dependent on our own strength, but on the power of the spirit that you have given. We thank you. We praise you for the salvation by grace that you've given, that we can ask, we can seek, we can knock, and we can know that we can hear a yes because you're a good and generous father, you're a good and generous son, and you're a good and generous spirit. We thank you. Lord, help us to live this way. Help us to keep coming back to the Sermon on the Mount. Help us to grow as disciples and help us to help others grow as disciples. We thank you for giving us and preserving your sermon to us so that we can hear it 2,000 years later. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.